Hey, and thanks so much for taking a moment to visit our podcast. Our mission at Antioch FBC is to grow in the knowledge and love of Jesus and go to our neighbors in the nations. We want you to be encouraged by this podcast and hope even more that you would come be a part of what God is doing in the community of Antioch. To find out more, visit us at www.antiochfirstbaptist.org. And now, stay tuned for a message from Pastor Matt. We have a passage before us today that's very familiar, at least to some maybe. Jesus walking on the water. But with today's, this, this miracle today, I'll, let me just be honest. It leaves me sort of scratching my head on the surface. Like, I can logically understand why Jesus would feed the 5,000. Yeah, it's still a, an amazing miracle. He took five loaves and two fish and was able to feed 20 plus thousand people, but that miracle makes sense, right? I can see why he's going around healing people. They're sick. So he heals them and shows them his power. I get to walking on the water, and I think, why? Why, why was this necessary? Uh, and I try to wrap my head around it logically, and it just doesn't make sense. But I think what we're going to see today, and what we know, is that Jesus always has a purpose. You know, when we've seen the disciples following him around and the crowds following him around for some time during his ministry, a lot of times they leave and they're scratching their head going, what, <laughs> what was he talking about? What did he say? And so I feel like if you're wondering, like, well, why does Jesus need to walk on water? You're not alone in that questioning. But I think we're going to see today to show us his purpose for walking on the water. And it's simply this, to show the disciples that he is the Son of God. To show them that he is the Son of God. He is the creator of the universe. And so by walking on the water, he is revealing that as creator... All creation has to bow down to him. Even the laws of physics have to bow down to Jesus, the Son of God. He truly is divine. And so this morning, let's keep that divinity, let's keep that majesty before us as we walk through this passage, all right? Now, as we've made it our practice, and we'll continue to do so, before we get into the text, we're going to just pause and have a moment to just quiet our minds, ask the Spirit to reveal Himself to us, and if silence is not a practice that you're used to practicing and participating in, it can be a daunting thing when you really close off everything. There are thoughts that can come, and so in that moment, if you find yourself just being bombarded, simply pray. Spirit, give me ears to hear. Quiet my heart. So let's do that, and then we'll get into our text. Amen. In the passage before us, actually in the one just before us that we looked at last week, we see Jesus trying to get away to spend time alone with the Father. But we saw that the crowds kept pushing towards him. So instead of him getting alone and away with the Father, he, what does he do? He came ashore and he heals the sick. 
And then he performs this miracle as we looked at of feeding 20,000 plus people with five loaves and two fish. Now there's something we're going to have to do. We have to do a little bit extra work today as we go through our passage. Pay attention to timestamps. A lot of times we don't get them, but in this passage, we get very particular stances where we see time has passed. So let's pay attention to those because they're going to come into play, and we need to understand the sequence of events that we're seeing. And so as we left off last week, we know that the miracle of feeding the 5,000 has just happened, right? So we know that it's just after dinner time. So it's just after dinner time, and let's pick up in verse 22. He said, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Jesus commands the disciples, get into the boat while I handle the crowd. Pay attention to that wording there, the way it is phrased, that verbiage. It says, he made them get into the boat. Now, we have seen throughout the study of Matthew that the disciples have been right beside Jesus. They've been following him along with the crowds. And I imagine that when they see and hear this language, he made them get in. I think there's some pushback there from the disciples. I I think... And we don't, we don't have this, but I think when you look at that particular language, he made them get in and go. There was no choice. Whether they wanted to or not, he made them get in the boat and go ahead of him. They didn't necessarily want to leave him. But Jesus insisted, go ahead. And we see why in the next verse, verse 23. After dismissing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night. He was there alone. This is what Jesus has been trying to do. Get alone with the Father. But as we saw, things kept getting in the way. I love how Matthew tells us this because what it does, it helps us see how much our Savior actually relates to us. Jesus dealt with distractions. Jesus dealt with people interrupting him. He has been trying to spend alone time with the Father, but things keep getting in the way of it. People are interrupting. Calls keep coming in. People needing to be healed. Isn't that the same with our life? There are so many things vying for our attention. There are so many reasons and so many distractions getting in the way of us spending time alone with the Father. And here we can learn from Jesus. Notice Jesus doesn't give up. Notice he doesn't give up when his intended time with the Father that he was setting aside was interrupted. Notice that he doesn't lash out at the crowds. Can't you see I'm trying to have my alone time with the Father? Quit following me. That's not what he said. He didn't just give up and let the work of the ministry be a substitute for alone time with the Father. That's tough. He simply shifted his schedule. 
He made space for this time alone with the Father. And if the Son of Man didn't let distractions and interruptions keep him from spending alone time with the Father, neither should we. Spending time alone with God, reading scripture, and praying is vital. And I use that word purposefully. It is vital to your walk as a believer. We must, you must, take alone time with the Father and make it a priority. Now, there's not a perfect formula. We're not going to get into legalism and say, well, you have to do it 30 minutes in the morning. And if, if your uh, planks on your bed are not worn out because your knees have been there enough, then you're not doing it right. No, no, no. We've done that. We've said, no, it has to look this way. No, it doesn't have to look a particular way. But we must do it. There's not a legalistic way we do it, but we must make a priority to being and spending time alone with Jesus if we are truly walking with him. And look, we've got Jesus as our example. I know, distractions come. Interruptions happen. But please, don't let those interruptions drown out your alone time with Jesus. Don't let your service to him, and I'm speaking directly to myself here, don't let your service to him be a substitute for your alone time with Jesus. I, I'm in a group right now. There's a group of pastors across the country, and one of the pastors in our network is studying. He's getting his doctorate. And so he's doing his doctoral study over pastoral burnout. And so what we are doing for, the net, for eight weeks is we are purposefully saying we're going to set aside a time in the morning, a time in the afternoon, and a time in the evening to just stop and to pray. Now, he checked up on us a couple weeks ago. Not an appearing overlook, but just, hey, how's it going? And I'll tell you, I probably started and stopped that text two or three times of going, oh, it's going great. Then I'd backspace. I've only missed a few. I'm doing well. Then I backspaced. And I finally just said, can I just be honest with you guys? I'm failing miserably at this. Yeah, your pastor. Struggling to figure out how to not let the interruptions get in the way of spending alone time with Jesus. So don't hear me going, oh, he's talking to us. No, I'm talking to me. <laughs> and so easy can I go, well, I'm in the Word preparing for a sermon. And that's not wrong. But I can easily get into the mode of just like, well, I'll just get a sermon ready and I miss my alone time with Jesus altogether. So I'm telling you, don't let your work for the kingdom get in the way of your alone, precious time with Jesus. There's going to be distractions. There's going to be interruptions. And if anybody, Jesus probably had more of those than any of us, right? I mean, he's performing miracles. He's healing people. He's feeding people. Like, he's just continually, we see through his ministry being interrupted and being interrupted. He didn't let those interruptions stop his pursuit of alone time with God. And if the Son of Man needed it, surely we do too. We may have to shift things. 
That's why we don't want to get legalistic. We don't want to say, oh, it's got to happen this particular day, particular time. No, we don't, we, we, we're, interruptions are going to come. We may have to pivot. But what Jesus is showing us here is how alone time with the Father is a priority to him, and we must make it a priority for our lives as well. Look at verse 24 and 25. He said, Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from land, battered by the waves, because the wind was against them. Jesus came toward them, walking on the sea, very early in the morning. There's another timestamp. So let's pay attention to that. When does Jesus, I just said it, when does Jesus arrive to the disciples? You can answer. Early in the morning. All right. When did he send them away? Right after dinner. So scholars and theologians assume that there's probably at least eight to nine hours difference between Jesus sent them out and when he came to them on the water. So we see that the disciples have been out at sea for nine, eight to nine hours battling a storm most of the night. Now, they were in the Sea of Galilee, and it says, as we saw, that they are some distance from land. And so we know that they could have been several miles from the shore, and they have been, as it says, beaten and battered all night by the wind and the waves. Now, I've shown this picture before in my sermon, so I want you to look. This is probably, a, or this is a rendering of what we would assume, based on ruins and things that we found, that the boat that they would have been in would have been similar to. This isn't a yacht. There is no, let's go inside and take cover from the wind and the waves. They have been fighting all night for their lives. This vessel could easily flip in strong enough wind and strong enough waves. So the disciples have been put through the ringer, if you'll say it that way, and have been fighting over all night to try to keep this boat from capsizing. I want to pause right here. Because in my study this week, I saw one of the, the theologians that I study point this out, and I thought, man, this is good, and I want to share it with you guys. His name's Frederick Dale Bruner, and here's what he said. He said, even though the disciples are on the sea at Jesus' command, what he told them in verse 22, no, you go. Even though they're out there, therefore, thus, they are in his will. They are not spared adversity. Even though the disciples are at sea at Jesus' command and in his will, they are not spared adversity. I think many times we look at our circumstances and we let them determine whether or not we feel like we're following the Lord's call. But here we see that Jesus was the one who told the disciples to leave and go. Go into the boat, into the sea. So even though they are facing adversity, even though they are battling for their lives, it doesn't mean that they were outside of the will of God. So if you are following Jesus this morning, it doesn't mean that your life is just going to be easy. I know there are many who will tell you that. But I want you to hear, if you are walking through adversity, 
it doesn't mean that you have weak faith. If you are walking through adversity, it doesn't mean that if you'll just believe more that the, advers- the adversity will leave. If you'll just have enough faith, it'll go away. These men have been walking with Jesus closer than anyone else on the earth at this point in time. Yet they are still sent by Jesus into the storm. So this morning, if you are walking through adversity, take heart. Know that the Lord is near the brokenhearted. As we're going to see in just a second, take courage is the command that Jesus gives. Even though you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with you. You may feel right now like you're in the middle of the sea, rowing and rowing, just trying to keep from capsizing. Trying to keep the boat from sinking. And if you feel that way, I want to encourage you this morning, you are not alone. The Lord is near, and he said, even in adversity, he has not forgotten you. He said, draw near to him, and he will draw near to us. It may seem like things are spinning out of control, but I want to encourage you with the words that the Apostle Paul encouraged the church at Colossae when he said, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And if you're walking through adversity this morning, will you hold on to verse 17? He says, He is before all things, And by him, all things hold together. He is the image of the invisible God. And by all things, by him, all things hold together. Hold on to that last phrase. By him, all things hold together. Listen, you don't have to be the one that everybody looks to, to to hold it all together. I know that some of you are. Based on family circumstances, based on how everything is structured, based on what's going in your life, everybody's looking to you to have it all together in this moment. And what I'm telling you is have the freedom in Jesus to say, He is the one who is holding all things together, not me. He is the one. Trust in the power of our sovereign Lord and take the pressure off yourself. Verse 26 and 27 says, When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they cried out in fear. 
And immediately Jesus spoke to them and he said, have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Have you ever been working in the yard or on a job so hard all day long that when you get done, you turn around and you're just dizzy? You start maybe seeing things that aren't really there. Like you don't even trust what you're seeing. I think that's what we can assume that's happening with the disciples. They've been rowing and rowing and rowing and trying to keep themselves alive all night. So imagine that when they see Jesus, of course they go, it's a ghost, because they're not going to believe their eyes. They're like, we're so exhausted. We must be seeing a ghost. But they quickly learn, it's not a ghost. It is Jesus. It is the Son of Man. And I love the command that he's given, have courage. And saying have courage, he's letting them know, guys, I got this. And then he says, it is I. And if you do some work on that phrase in the Greek, it is I, it is compared and translated, as we heard in the Old Testament, I am. Do you remember when Moses heard, I am, the I am? This is the same phrase when you translate it in the Greek. That's just how you can translate it here. And there are comparisons made to those two instances where Jesus is coming to them and saying, Guys, have courage. I am. I am. The disciples have followed Jesus' command. They have been obedient to his call. And so Jesus is saying to them, guys, there's no need to fear. I'm here. John MacArthur summed it up this way. He said, when believers are in the place of obedience, that's when they're in the place of safety. No matter what the circumstances I want to read that one again. When believers are in the place of obedience, they are in the place of safety, no matter what the circumstances. The place of security is not the place of favorable circumstance, but places of obedience to God's will. We don't want that to be true. Right? We want it to be flipped. We want no circumstance equals following God's will. That's not what we see here. That's not what this story is telling us. We want our circumstances to indicate whether or not we are in his will. But that's not the picture we see here. Obedience is the picture that we see here. Obedience where we must live in obedience. And if we are living in obedience, there is no storm big enough that the master is not there for. He is with us. Now this statement that Jesus makes, I am, is in the exact middle of this account. If you look at it, there are six verses ahead of it, and there are six verses after it. This is the pinnacle point of the middle, I am. This is where we hang on to, I am. 
But now we see Peter stepping up and being Peter. Look at verses 28 and 29. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. Now, a lot of times we give Peter the bad rap. A lot of times we look at Peter and we go, man, he is just so flippant. He's overconfident. He comes across as brash. He overreacts. I think we have a lot to learn from Peter. Some say, oh, Peter is prideful. He's wanting to walk on water. Some say Peter is grabbing at power. He's wanting to do the same thing that Jesus is doing. But I don't think that's the case at all. What I think we see here from Peter is that, and throughout his life, he has a bold love for Jesus. Doesn't mean he's perfect. We see that he's not. And there are many times where we want to go, Peter, tone it down, dude. Like, (laughs) take a breath. You want to be honest? I wish the church had more Peters. I wish there were more like Peter who were bold like that. We always say, I'd rather have to, to hold back a wild horse than to try to push one. Right? I think that's kind of what we see happening here with Peter. You know why I believe that Peter wanted to step out on the water? Simply to be with Jesus. He wasn't going to let the water or the storm stand in the way of being with his Savior. And so he says to him, and he says, command me to come to you. If Peter was this prideful dude, I don't think he would have asked If Peter was power hungry, I don't think he would have submitted himself to Jesus' authority. He would have said, hey, you told us we were going to be able to do exactly what you do plus more. And he'd have just jumped out on the boat and expected him to walk. That's not what he did. What did he do? He asked. He submitted himself to Jesus And Jesus said, come. And we see, and climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water, and he came towards Jesus. This wasn't about performing the same miracle as Jesus. It was all about getting to and being with Jesus. And so Jesus saw that, and he allowed Peter to walk on the water. But we know... It didn't last very long, did it? Verse 30 and 31. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And then beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? How many times... Are we like Peter? And we let the wind and the waves take our eyes off of Jesus. Just imagine 
what Peter is feeling right now. He's walking on water. He too is able to understand and feel what denying those laws of physics we talked about earlier felt like. Like it makes no sense logically that he should be able to do this. And you would think that once he stepped out onto the water and he's standing on to the water that his focus would solely be on Jesus and nothing could stop him. I heard this week a perspective on why Jesus says, you have little faith. And how maybe he wasn't necessarily talking about an amount as much as maybe he was talking about an amount of time. That Peter's faith, faith lasted. Because before he looked around and saw that the wind and the waves were coming at him. Maybe you've done this. I have, so I'll go ahead. I'm guilty. How often have you prayed, Lord, if you'll just do this for me, I'll love you forever. I'll serve you. for. If you'll just do this, I'll serve you forever. If you'll just let me get this job, if you'll just let me get this house, if you'll just let me get this wife, I'll love you and serve you forever. If you'll just let me fill in the blank. And then he gives it to us. We receive his goodness. And how quickly we look away from Jesus. Peter looks away from his master. He sees the, he sees the waves. He sees the distractions. And what happens? He begins to sink. But at least he knew to cry out, Lord, save me. And Jesus did. Jesus didn't stand back and let Peter sink. I wonder if, if, if we were in that position and, and, and we were like, man, I gave you, I let you walk on water and you looked away, go ahead, sink. It's not what Jesus did. He didn't cross his arm and say, well, your choice, your free will, you made the choice, go ahead and sink. It's not what he did. What do we see him do? He reached out and he grabbed him. Now notice who grabbed who. Did Jesus reach out his hand and say, all right, Peter, I'm here. You just have to grab my hand. It's ready for you. Is that how it went? No. Jesus reached down and grabbed the sinking Peter, and he caught hold of him. You know what that means? Jesus saves We don't reach out and grab Jesus. Jesus reaches out and grabs us as we are sinking. As I was writing that, here's what came to my mind. I was sinking 
deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more, but the master of the sea. What did he do? He heard my despairing cry. And from the waters he lifted me, and now saved am I. You want to sing it? Love lifted me, love lifted me, when nothing else could help. Love lifted me, love lifted me, love lifted me, when nothing else could help. written from right here they read this story and they see that love lifted me I didn't lift me I was sinking I didn't reach out and grab the hand of Jesus that was there no he reached out and grabbed me and he said I am love and I'm lifting you And the last two verses are our response. They're the disciples' response, and they're our response. Verse 32 and 33 says, when they, got, when, he, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, Truly you are the Son of God. Notice this. Even with Peter's doubt, even with Peter's sinking, and you know the disciples saw it, he sinks because of his doubt. Where does Jesus end up? In the boat with him. He didn't leave. His, Peter's doubt did not de defer or deflect Jesus' love. I, sometimes we've been told that. Well, if you doubt, it's on, it's on you. Jesus is standing there waiting. If you doubt, he's not going to move. No, in the middle of Peter's doubt, Jesus said, you know what? I'll still get in the boat with you. I'm not leaving you. Even in the middle of your doubt, even though you have sunk in front of me because you let the winds and the waves distract you, I'm still in the boat with you. Our doubt doesn't repel Jesus. Instead, he gets in the boat with us. And as soon as he does, the seas are calmed. And what do we see the disciples' response to be? Worship. Worship. Truly, you are the Son of God. This morning, I want us to see this passage from two vantage points. The first one being you personally. I, I want you to, to look in yourself and, and ask the question, what are the winds and the waves in my life that have caused me to take my eyes off Jesus? What are the winds and the waves in your life that have caused you to take your eyes off Jesus? 
Maybe you were once feeling so close to him, like you could step out on the water. But maybe right now, in this moment, you feel like you're so distracted by everything that's happening around you, you're sinking. It's so easy for us to become distracted and focused on the wind and the waves that we lose sight of Jesus. Maybe you're not a believer in Jesus even. Maybe you feel right now this hand of Jesus pulling you out of your sin, raising you up, and you're like, "What? what is this? I don't deserve this. That's the master of the sea as you are sinking in your sin, raising you up and showing himself to you and say, listen, I am the son of man. And I have died the death that you deserve. I have paid the price for your sin so that you might be given perfect life. Would you this morning, if that is you, would you do as Peter did and say, Lord, save me? Cry out, Lord, save me. The second perspective or second vantage point I want us to look at from is this is the vantage point for us as a church body. Now we will soon hear in a couple chapters in chapter 16 Jesus is going to tell Peter, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. Right? And so it's okay, it's right and good for us to see how that we can use this story of Peter and look to us as a church body. Again, I quoted him earlier, Frederick Bruner. He said it this way. He said this about how the church can look at this passage. He said, I think sometimes the church has been guilty of believing that her surroundings and resources, parentheses, or lack of them, are more decisive than her Lord. The church may believe that the world's winds are stronger than the Lord's words. But we know that a sovereign Lord uses, enables, he rebukes, and he saves a volatile church. So I want us as a church to be a church that doesn't let all the distractions that are around us keep us from focusing our eyes on Jesus. And we can do this. Or we can get so distracted by all the things that we miss entirely the mission and the calling that he has given to us as a church body. Satan is always going to try to keep us from fulfilling our mission. He is always going to try to keep us from focusing on what we are to focus on, and that's Jesus. If we keep our eyes on Jesus, church, I believe that we have amazing days ahead of us and that God has called us to do amazing things more than we could ever imagine or think as long as we keep our eyes on Jesus. If we ever get to a place where all we see are the wind and the waves around us, we will lose our focus and we'll sink. But if we keep our eyes on Jesus, he gets in the boat with us 
He doesn't stand back and say, oh, you got to do it perfectly. No. If you pull in what he said from last week, he's like, just give me what you got, and I'll get in the boat with you, and we'll sail on. Amen? Let's take just a moment and ask the Spirit to reveal to us, are there distractions? Are there winds and waves that we're keeping our focus off of Jesus? And in that moment, if he reveals something to you, simply repent and believe.